all face storms in life, too often we misunderstand God's purposes for allowing them. How should we understand the difficult times we all face? Stay with me. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm the academic dean and professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. I'm so glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you, taking your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. If you have a question, now's the time to call. The phone number is 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. Trisha McMillan is our producer. Handling all things technical is Courtney Young, and I don't even know who's answering the phones. Maybe I can hear that from someone. Lynn is answering the phones. Glad that she's there. Now, go get your cup of coffee and open your Bible because we're about to study the scriptures together. But before we get to your questions, let's talk about understanding the storms of life. Now, I have a friend that went through some terrible life storms recently, just in the last few years. He lost his job. There was a cancer diagnosis. There was a good deal of conflict in his home congregation. And I would often look at him and i think, why is this happening to this choice, faithful servant of God? He might have been asking that himself. Well, the real question is, why do storms come upon any of us? I mean, we all face stormy weather in life. It might be a health storm, a bad diagnosis. It could be a relational breakup. It could be a financial crisis and you can't pay the bills. It could be any number of difficulties. We hit these storms. Well, how should we think about these troubles? For the next two weeks, we're going to look at one of my favorite stories from the Gospel of Mark, the time the Lord Jesus stilled the storm. Let's look at Mark chapter 4 verses 35 through 41. Here's what it says. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat. And the other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat and the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So they woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Today, we're going to see three ways that we can misunderstand the storms of life. Next week, we'll see God's real purposes for storms. But let's review what's going on here. They're out on the boat. A storm comes up, and it's so terrifying that they think they're going to die. Now, the Sea of Galilee isn't really a sea. I hate to disappoint you. It's just a lake. In fact, it's a freshwater lake. And the reason it's called a sea is that everything in the Holy Land gets an upgrade. 
For example, hills are called mountains, streams are called rivers, and in this case, a lake is called the sea. Still, don't mistake how dangerous it could be. When the wind comes up, it makes the lake very challenging. When I was, oh, many years ago, even I were studying in Israel for the summer, we were staying up in Galilee, uh, studying the uh, historical geography of the Galilee, and I went out for a swim in the late afternoon on the lake, and the wind comes up every afternoon. It's just, it was a perfectly nice summer day. The wind came up as it always does, and the waves and the movement of the lake was so great, I couldn't swim back to shore. Eva had to toss out a life preserver and pull me in. Now, the reason that's important is think about what it's like when there's a terrible storm. If that's how it is on a nice sunny day with the normal wind, when a storm comes in, it is terrifying. A boat can capsize, and it would be terrible and frightening. So even these experienced fishermen could very well become terrified as, as they did. They, they misunderstood what was happening. They couldn't understand this. They were followers of the Messiah. They thought they were exempted from difficulties as long as they were with him. They were mistaken. And so are we if we think that following Jesus means we won't face storms. Here are three ways we frequently misunderstand storms. Number one, we think the storms of life are random, that they're not part of God's plan, that they just happen to us. Look at verse 35. The Lord Jesus told them to get into the boat and said, let's go over to the other side. He knew the storm was coming better than any meteorologist on TV. In fact, he's in charge of the storm. When we face a storm, it's not just happening. It's God's plan for us. When I came to faith, my dad disowned me. Never wanted to talk with me again. Considered me dead. For the next 26 years, he wouldn't acknowledge me or speak with me. He never got over my faith in Jesus. When this first happened, I thought, is this how God shows me he loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life? It didn't seem possible. But here's what I know now. This wasn't random. It actually was part of God's good plan for my life. When we face a storm, it's never random. It's part of God's plan. Second, we think the Messiah Jesus is unaware of our storms. Look at verse 38. But Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. They were rowing desperately, and they thought the Lord was having a nap, and utterly unaware of the desperation they felt. Well, let's acknowledge that Jesus was indeed sleeping. But also, let's remember that he is the God-man. And he was completely aware of what was happening even while sleeping. Remember what Psalm 121.4 says? He that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Listen, no matter what storm we're facing, we are never alone. The Lord Jesus is fully aware and fully involved with us as we face any tempest in our life. Now here's the third misunderstanding. We think the Messiah Jesus doesn't care about our storms. Look at the second half of verse 38. After waking up Jesus, they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? 
Of course he cares. What kind of question is that? He cares when we face turmoil. He cares not only when we think we're going to die, but when he cares not only when we think we're going to die, but when it, if we actually are on the point of death. He thinks about all these things for us, and he cares deeply. Think of the death of Lazarus. John 11.35 tells us that when the Lord Jesus came to the home of Martha and Mary, when Lazarus had died, what did the Lord Jesus do? He wept. Jesus wept, it says in John 11.35. Why? He wept for their grief. He wept for their loss, for Martha and Mary's pain. But he also sorrowed over there and the people around them. He sorrowed over their lack of faith. He felt this deeply. He cared immensely. And you know what? He cared about the disciples in in that boat. And he cares deeply for us when we're going through storms. He is there with us. And if we are weeping, he's weeping with us. Well, next week, we'll look at what is the Lord's, what, what the Lord's purposes are for all the tempests and gales of life that we face. But till then, when we face storms, let's remember they are all part of God's good plan for us, that the Lord Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, and he is utterly aware of what is happening, and he cares deeply about bringing us through the storms safely and securely. They are all God's good plan for us hope you can draw some encouragement from that if you're going through a storm now. We're going to go right to the phones. We're going to speak with Rita in Hendersonville, North Carolina, listening on the Moody Radio app. Hi, Rita. How can I help you today? Hi, Dr. Rydelnik. I was wondering, what is the difference between the Holy Spirit and conscience? The question came up with a study. Well, that's a, I think that's a good question. I'm not sure that we can dis- always discern the difference. Uh, I think this, this may be one of the things that happens. Uh, the conscience is something that God has built into us. We read about that in Romans 1, so that whether we know the Lord or we don't, when we are involved in something that is morally wrong— the conscience tells us, it reminds us that this is wrong. It's, it's just a, a, something that God has built in to every human being. Now, one of the things that we can do is we can blunt that conscience. We can, we can uh, get it callous so that we don't respond. But nevertheless, that's something that God has made for us. Now, in John 16, it speaks about the Holy Spirit's work in drawing men and women to himself. And it says... Uh, there that he will, uh, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will uh, convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So there is a conviction, or the, the, the word for conviction there means convince. That's what the idea is. It's not like the, when we have a bad conscience that we, oh, you know, we're, we're shaking and upset and all that. But the word conviction, as it's used in John sixteen eight through 11, I think those are the verses, uh, I think it's, it's important to get that distinction that it means convince. And so it has uh, an idea that it's not just something that's naturally happening, 
but he is pointing something out to us, and he is making it utterly clear to us that what we, yes, John sixteen eight through eleven, that he will convince the world. He's not even talking about followers of Jesus here about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convinces about sin because they don't believe in me. Now, what that is meaning is that there is a sin or multiple sins, uh, uh, the nature of sin in a person's life, and the Holy Spirit will convince them that they are separated from God and in sin. I believe that's something that the Holy Spirit does, even with followers of Jesus. Sometimes we have something in our life and maybe it kind of blows past our conscience. We're not uh, utterly and completely aware of what's going on. That, And then as we're praying, the Holy Spirit will kind of turn his laser light onto some area of our life because that's what we get from 1 John 1. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus the Messiah uh, uh cleanses us from all sin. And so what First John 1 is talking about, that we walk in the light, the light shines on an area, we confess our sin, same paragraph there, and then we continue to have fellowship with him as we walk with him. So I think that conscience is just something that kind of alerts us to the wrong things we do. The Holy Spirit's much more of a laser light to remind us that this sin separates us from God and that we need the Lord Jesus. And for a believer, what that does, it convinces us that we need to confess that and restore fellowship with him. I don't know if that's a clear enough distinction, but that's how I see the difference. Sure. Uh, my friend will be so grateful. Thank you. And I just wanted to say, I, ha- I had a different question, but I looked in my Moody Bible commentary, and I got the answer. Oh, yay! So graciously <laughs> gave it to me years ago. <laughs> and it was so helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I'm so glad the Moody Bible commentary was helpful. I have to look at stuff. You know, I, I wrote some of it, and I... Uh, what should I say? I, I know I edited every word of it. I worked through it with Mike Van Lanningham, who, by the way, will be with me next week here in studio for Open Line. Mike V is going to be back here on Open Line next week. But nevertheless, uh, I don't remember everything. I don't even remember everything I wrote. And so sometimes when I, when I have a question, I've got to... Uh, I've got to go check the Booty Bible commentary, just like you, Rita. Thanks so much. We're going to come right back with more of your questions in just a moment. You're listening to Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. That's me. And we're going to delve into the scriptures together to make sure we understand exactly what it says. Welcome back. My name is Michael Rajonic. This program is called Open Line. Our phone number here, 877-548-3675. Feel free to call with any of your questions about the Bible, God, or the spiritual life. Before getting back to the phones, uh, let's talk about our current resource. You know, Psalms and Proverbs are two of the most popular books of the Bible. But there are passages that leave us confused or asking questions. That's why this excerpt from the Moody Bible Commentary is a great resource for your study. In fact, I'm so grateful for Rita who just called and said that uh, she had used the Moody Bible Commentary at the close of the last segment. I'm so grateful for that. This commentary, particularly the ones on Psalms and Proverbs, 
offers background and insight to passages that guide us in answering our questions, the Psalms and Proverbs commentary has been excerpted, made into a separate book from the Moody Bible Commentary, and it could be yours. You could start applying the comfort and wisdom of these great books of the Bible for yourself by using this excerpted, is that the way to call it, an excerpted version just of the Psalms and Proverbs commentary from the Moody Bible Commentary. It's yours if you give a gift of any size to Open Line. Uh, we want to say thank you and send you a copy of that book. Just call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. That's our website. And remember to ask for the Moody Bible Commentary on Psalms and Proverbs. Well, we're going to go back to the phones here, and we're going to speak with Mark in Davenport, Iowa, listening on WDLM. Uh, hi, Mark. How can I help you today? Doing. Hello, Doctor. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Uh, looking forward to to speaking with you. Fantastic. I have a question about timing. How long was it from the time that the Israelites um, left Egypt to the time where King Saul um, became king um, of Israel? Well, the the as the Israelite exodus, according to First Kings six, took place in fourteen forty six BC. So fourteen forty six BC. Then, uh, let's see if I can remember the date for Saul. Yeah, uh, uh, let's see. The kingdom split nine thirty nine seventy is when Solomon became king. Ten ten fifty is the date. For Saul, so basically, from 1446 to 1050 is about 400 years. Okay. Okay. So great. That's the, my the, question. One of the best uh, passages, in case you're wondering, how I'm not just pulling these out of the out of the air. These numbers. It's in First Kings chapter six, and we already know what what the dates were for for David and Solomon and the split of the kingdom in 930. So if the kingdom split in 930, which we know, then each of uh, Solomon, David, and Saul each had about 40-year reigns. So that puts us at 1050. But how do we know when the exodus happened is in 1 Kings chapter 6. It says... Solomon began to build the temple, in verse 1, in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel. So if he began in 970, that's the start of his reign, then the fourth year would be 966, and you just go back 480 years, and that makes it 1446 B.C. Okay? Wow. That is so insightful. I really appreciate your help. Okay. Um, that really helps to um, guide my um, movements forward. Thank you so much, sir. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for your call. Uh, we're going to speak next with Ron in Sanford, Florida, listening to WRMB. Welcome to Open Line, Ron. How can I help you? Thank you, Dr. Rydelnik, for taking my call. I'm a frequent flyer with you. So oh, good. I'm so really glad. Fun. Thanks. I, thanks well, for bringing me along. You. 
<laughs> One of these days I'm going to go to Israel with you. One of these days. Oh, God, that's great. I was going to say God willing, but my friend Mike Van Lanningham is going to be on the program with, with me next week, and he says it's always God's will for anyone to go to Israel. So <laughs> I don't know. So. That's great. I like that answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, my, my question is, is uh, there appears to be uh, an, an, an apparent contradiction in the Bible in Exodus 32, 31-33, when compared to Revelations 3, 5. Um, I read the comments in the Moody Bible. Well, don't worry about that. Just tell me what you think the contradiction is. I don't, I'm not pulling this up out of my head, out of the blue. Yeah, right. right. Well, it, it says in the Exodus uh, passage that I will blot out uh, of my book all those who have sinned against me. And, and then in Revelation, it says those who overcome, I will never erase from the Lamb's book of life. One of the a question came up in our Bible study. And I'm sorry I didn't mention this before the young lady I spoke. And they were strong uh, with this opinion that everyone's name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, your name gets blotted out if you die without faith in Christ. And they used uh, this Exodus this Exodus passage as a proof text for that. I think that's taking things a, a way bit too literally. Uh, it's there, to imagine that there really are books. I don't know if there is or not. Here's the thing: what it's saying is people who rebel against God, who don't know Him, they are not going to be in the Book of Life. Whether they're, I don't think everyone starts out the book of life. The moment we sin, we're blotted out. When, when we believe, we're written in the book of life. And we'll never, even if we sin after that, once we believe, we'll never be uh, taken out. Here's the only thing you need to get from these two passages, and don't go further than that, is that, tr- particularly in the Old Testament, trusting in God, that's what we're talking about in Exodus 32, Living for him as a result of trusting, that that means we're in his book forever. Same thing in the New Testament. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died for our sins and rose again. We're in his book forever. However, if we don't believe, and that's the key sin, we're blotted out. Uh, and so uh, I think it's just a he'll never blot out those who do believe. He will blot out those who don't believe. I think that's simple, and it's not contradictory. Right, right, because I think it kind of goes against the doctrine of uh, the eternal security of the believer where we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. How does that go? What I said goes against the security of the believer? No, 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 what they say. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, but but I, I just think that what we're doing is we're taking a warning and a comfort. The warning is if you've not trusted in the Lord, well... You're going to be, you know, your sins will count against you. You'll be uh, blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. If you've trusted in the Lord, there's nothing we can do. If we've believed that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, once we've put our trust in him, there's nothing we can do, no matter how uh, how much we sin. And, and I have to say this, we sin a lot. I think if, if believers could lose their salvation by sinning, we, none of us would be saved because we all sin. Right. Uh, the result right. of that, that's the great assurance we have that we'll never be uh, erased from the Lamb's book of life. Okay? Right. I think that, that statement made, it really goes into what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if, if everyone sinned without 
you know, we no one would make it. Yeah, exactly. We all, listen. Uh, we if we could lose our salvation by sinning, not one of us could be saved. Because, because right. uh, you know, wow. it, it says in First John one, if we say that we don't sin or have sin, we're making God a liar. We, we are all going to sin. So anyway, thanks for your input, Ron. Really appreciate it, uh, and have a great day. We're going to talk. Thank you so much, Doctor. Sure. Uh, we're going to. Uh, well, well, let me let me do this. Uh, I want to mention something, uh, just so you know that. I, I think that Open Line is just a terrific time to work together. I love seeing the whole crew here, and there's a big crew here today. Uh, besides Courtney and, and Trisha, there's some uh, people learning how to be engineers and doing stuff like that. And It's a great team here that makes Open Line work, but part of the team are also our kitchen table partners, people who commit to give monthly. There are people, I think, who have been giving occasionally to get the current resource, but maybe now want to consider becoming kitchen table partners, becoming part of the team. We would so appreciate that to commit monthly. And if you do commit to give a gift on a monthly basis by becoming a kitchen table partner, what we'll do is send you something special. It's a Bible study moment. You'll get it in your email every other week. It's a Bible study designed exclusively for our kitchen table partners. And they're, I think that they're... Uh, really helpful and and might be encouraging to you. If you want to become a Kitchen Table Partner, call 888-644-7122 or you can sign up online at openlineradio.org. We'll be back with the mailbag in just a moment with Trisha, so don't go away. Back to Open Line. My name is Michael Radelnik. Joining me right now is uh, Trisha McMillan. She is the producer of Open Line. She is also the queen of the questions, the Malka of the mailbag, the person in charge of the questions that you send in. She's the one that pulls them all together and and decides which ones we're going to talk about. So, uh, welcome back, Trisha. We had a week off last week, right? We did. But we, I, listen, I'm always amazed at how I looked at the Facebook page and you had that picture of the three of us yeah. in Israel, Wasn't Eva, you and me. Boy, people really love you and Eva. I, I feel sometimes when, when <laughs> we three are together, it's like, oh, what am I, chopped liver? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Having Eva on, it just adds an additional perspective. And it's just fun, I think, yeah. to hear the two of you talk and discuss the Bible. Yeah. And it's just, it's fun to hear you two interact as a couple, but especially about the Bible. And several people talked about hearing Eva's laugh (laughs) and just enjoying hearing her. I know. And just hearing her and just loving, loving it when she joins. People are really surprised. Uh, They asked me if that's just what we're like on the radio. I said, no, we laugh all the time. (laughs) We've been married now since the dawn of time, it seems like. And We've been married 47 years. When you think about it, that's a long time. It is a long time. And and we're still laughing, so that's good news, don't yes, you think? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yep. So, well, let's let's uh, let's go to the mailbag that you, as I say, you pick the questions. So everyone listening, when you get mad at me that I haven't answered your mailbag question, just know who to blame, not me. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's me. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I tried. There are lots of questions that. Well, that's I'm still why we did the mailbag program yes. last week. People can go yeah. back and listen to that if they missed it. If, especially if you've sent in a question and didn't hear it, probably got answered last week. And <laughs> so, yeah, maybe it did. So check that out. You can go to the Moody Radio app. You can uh, get a podcast. And also what you can do is you can go to our website, openlineradio.org. It's got about a year and a half of programs on there, right? Yep. Listen to past programs. So there we go. Well, our first one is actually, since we were taped last week, two weeks ago I asked you a question that I had not given you a heads up on that needed a little bit more research. Mm -hmm. And I asked you, and you're like, oh, I don't know, I'll look it up. And then you called me on the way home, on my way home, and you said, I looked it up, and here's what I learned about this. <laughs> and so I'm going to revisit that question that I had asked you, okay. which was from Michelle in Illinois, about Isaiah 59:19, which says in the KJV and the New King James, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. And so there was this, when you look at newer translations, it doesn't talk about this flood, and it doesn't talk about, uh, it, it called it a rushing stream. You translated this from the Hebrew on the air, if, if, if you remember that. Um, and so, but you did more research and, and yeah. study on this after we were on the program. So what did you learn? Trying to think about how to simplify the answer here. But if you read verse 18, we go back to context. According to their deeds, this is the King, uh, New King James, accordingly he will repay. This is similar to all the modern translations. Recompense to his enemies the coastlands he will fully repay. And so shall they fear, is verse 19. So here's what it's saying. They will fear... Uh, the name of the Lord from the West, that's also the same in all the translation, and his glory from the rising of the sun. Okay, so, so far we're all the same, basically saying the same thing. But then it says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, it, all it says in Hebrew is when he comes or he will come like a flood, like a rushing stream, the question there is the third person singular, he. What is the antecedent? The King James takes it the enemy from verse 18. All modern translations take it as referring to the coming of the, the fear of the Lord and his glory. This, this is the Lord coming, and the antecedent for the third person singular is not the enemy but the Lord. So it's a determination of the antecedent. The nearest antecedent is the Lord. So he will come like a flood or like a rushing stream. And then it says, uh, the spirit of the Lord or the wind of the Lord it could be the same word. Ruach refers to the spirit or it could be a wind from the Lord. It could be either one. So it says, uh, he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord, okay, which the wind of the Lord drives. That's the idea. Well, what's the difference between a stand? That's the other big difference is a standard versus the wind of the Lord being driven. That's the word. One version takes it as a standard or a flag. The other takes it as the word driven. Well, what it is, the King James takes a similar sounding word in Hebrew, which means standard 
like an uh, Isaiah 11, which is he will lift up a standard for the nations, Isaiah 11:10. They understand the Hebrew word used here in Isaiah 59:19 to be that word, but they're mistaken. It was it's a verb actually that means driven, and so. There's one thing is a questionable antecedent from the context, and the second is they misunderstand a word in Hebrew. They, they get the root wrong, and they see it as meaning an ensign or a standard or a flag instead of understanding it as to be driven. So that's it. Okay. So there's a mistake in there, and there's a judgment choice. Uh, the, the best rule to remember when you have a pronoun, it's usually referring to the nearest antecedent. On the other hand, it, it's possible that it could have gone back earlier. You have to look at the context to see it. It doesn't fit this context to see the antecedent as the enemy. Okay. And I, I know personally I have, when writing English sentences, sometimes I, I realize that when I say he, and I've referenced two people in mm-hmm. the previous half of the sentence— that it, that I think, you know, that might be confusing as to who I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And right. sometimes I go back and I read it and I'm like, I'm not sure which one I was talking about. Yeah. And so so we have the same issue in English sometimes yeah, on knowing which antecedent you're referring to for that pronoun. Mm-hmm. So this was a little bit deeper than we tend to do yeah. on these questions. But I, I think it's very helpful, and especially since you had gone back and looked at it again after I kind of just dropped it on you on the air, um, to understand how some of these differences in the translations come about too, that some are choices mm-hmm. on how they're determining which definition they're going with, yep. the translators go with, and some are just mistakes. Yeah, in, there's two, in two not things here. What, the word means. what yeah. is the choice of what's the antecedent? And the second is what is the meaning of the word there? Right. That that's they, the King James translates uh, standard uh, versus driven. In yeah. all other modern translations, which gets the word right. Okay. So in this particular case, the better understanding is the newer versions, yeah. the New American Standard or yeah. the HCSB or one of those. Yeah, we want to say that. And I, I, I know if there are people listening who think the King James Bible is perfect and all translations have issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes, we, well, just for an example, we use the New American Standard, which is one of the best literal translations that ever has been. And when I was working on the Moody Bible Commentary, that was our standard translation that we we're basing it on. But we were really working with the original Hebrew and Greek. Okay. The, all our translate, all our interpreters were using the original languages. And every now and then, I would do this. Mike V would do this. A lot of the commentators in the commentary would do this. We'd say, "Well, the the New American Standard says whatever X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. but I think uh, as the interpreter." I think the better translation would be A, B, or C, as in the NIV or as in the the HCSB or something like that. And uh, it's just it's just there's sometimes translational choices that yeah. we make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for that uh, more in depth explanation mm-hmm. that I think can help further our Bible studies as we do them and when we run into these things, knowing that there's a deeper meaning or deeper um, reason. Deeper reason yeah. for some of these differences is very helpful. So I'm going to fit in one more before yeah. the break. Okay. This is from Shira, who wrote us on Facebook in Israel. Who's our friend. She's our friend in Israel. Hi, yeah. Shira. Um, she wants to know, what's the purpose of the Song of Songs? What's the purpose of the Song of Songs? Well, first of all, 
it's part of God's wisdom literature. It teaches about wisdom in marriage. And if you, I think the Moody Bible Commentary has a, a terrific outline of the book of uh, Song of Songs. And uh, I'm only saying that because I was part of the people who wrote that <laughs> one. But <laughs> it, it deals with courtship in chapters 1 through 3, 5, and then it deals with the wedding, the consummation of a relationship between a husband and wife in 3, 6 through 5, 1, and then marriage, the maturation of the relationship, which deals with problems and how to express love and such like that. So it's primarily about wisdom in marriage. It's part of the wisdom literature. It's a collection of poems with that kind of structure. So it's courtship, uh, wedding, marriage. Those are the three movements within those poems. Now, it's also important to remember that rabbinic literature, Sukkah 52a in the Talmud says, all the, pro- all the things written in the Bible, all that the prophets were written were about nothing except the Messiah. And the same thing is said in Acts 3 when Peter says that all the prophets wrote about the Messiah. And I know we're not, this is not part of the prophets, but it's, what that means is all the books written in the Bible were foretelling the coming of the Messiah. Since this is about marriage, how is this about the Messiah? Well, I don't think it's an allegory, but I do think it presents ideal marriage. Because Solomon, who wrote it, didn't live this. You know, <laughs> but it's ideal marriage. And if it is ideal marriage, then it points us to the ideal bridegroom and his relationship with his spouse. So it gives sort of a symbolic pointing towards the messianic king and his relationship with his people. So okay. that's that's the way it points to Messiah. So, but the the message as it was written was about wisdom in marriage. But also there was this idea that it's going to point to a deeper relationship that we can have with, with the Messiah. Okay. So, All right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that is... A, by the way, check out the Moody Bible Commentary on Song of Songs. I think you'll find it really helpful, Shira. Uh, we're going to come right back with more of your questions right here on Open Line. That was Trisha McMillan. I'm Michael Wright. Like, stay with us. More to come. To open line. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm so glad to be with you today. Thanks for listening and for calling in. Our number 877-548-3675. In Romans 10.1, Paul said his heart's desire, and listen to this word, and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The apostle prayed for the people of Israel, a prayer we too often neglect. That's why Chosen People Ministries new calendar is a great reminder to pray for Israel. This year's calendar will immerse us in the land of Israel and encourage us to pray. With breathtaking photos of the land and prompts for genuine prayer, the calendar can be yours free. Since the Jewish New Year actually begins in the fall, people wonder why, why did they give out a calendar in September, you know, or give it out in August for September. Well, it's because the Jewish New Year begins in the fall, and this calendar runs from September through December of 24. 
For your free copy of The Chosen People Ministries Jewish Art Calendar, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. And you scroll down, you'll see a link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that, you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of the 2324 Messianic Jewish Art Calendar from Chosen People Ministries. Well, we're going to go to Rosie, because I love that name, in Baltimore, Maryland, listening on WRBS. Welcome to Open Line, Rosie. How can I help you today? Yeah, I just have a question. Do you know why I love the name name Rosie? (laughs) No. Because my English professor at Moody Bible Institute uh, 49 years ago was a young teacher named Rosie de Rose. And uh, she has been friends with Eva and me now for 49 years. Can you imagine that? And uh, people know her from the Chris Fabry live program. She taught at Moody for over 50 years. And she is one of my favorite people in the world. So when I see the name Rosie, there we go. (laughs) I love that name. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. My question is, what was going on when... Jesus told the disciples to follow me. Now, what was it about Jesus or the disciples that he said, follow me, and they did so? Mm-hmm. Well, you have to look at the—if you if you looked at the harmony of the Gospels, you know, when you look at all the Gospels and we put them together, and particularly Luke, which has a, a great example of the call of the disciples, Mark—it seems like it's happening immediately in Mark 1— But here's what I I just, if you look at the public ministry of Jesus from his first Passover to his second, here's what we know happens. He gets baptized in the River Jordan, Mm -hmm. okay? He begins to find some disciples like Andrew and Philip who hear him teach and they, they follow him, which is not unusual in first century Judaism, find a teacher follow him. But then he does the miracle at Cana. He goes uh, up to Jerusalem and casts out the money changers, showing his authority. He speaks to people like Nicodemus, and uh, he leaves, he does these kinds of things. He heals the nobleman's son at Capernaum. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he teaches Isaiah 61, he does all these things. He's teaching at Capernaum. Then he does the miraculous catch. And he tells Simon and Andrew and James and John, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. They have heard much teaching and seen many miracles surrounding this man with great authority. And even if they hadn't witnessed it themselves, the word has gone out. And then he does this miracle for them, and he says, follow me, what would you do? Mm. <laughs> I would follow him. Good. That's okay. what That's what we all should do. So, Okay, but that's why. Right. Okay, Rosie? Okay. Thank you, Thank so, you so much. Sure. Thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, we're going to talk with Skeeter in Ringgold, Georgia, listening on MBW. Welcome to Open Line, Skeeter. Hey, good morning, Michael. Uh, appreciate you very much. Thank you. My question is um, at the bottom of 
Romans 7, of course, Romans 7 is Paul's discourse about battle with sin. And at the very end here in 25 or 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 25 is like, I thank God it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the bottom of that verse there, he's like, he's repeating kind of what he has already said earlier. Mm-hmm. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the law, but with the flesh, the law of sin, there is therefore no no condemnation for those who are in Christ. At the bottom of 25, but that part that says, I serve the law of God, mm-hmm. and then he's he's got a battle with the law of the flesh and sin, it just seems like there's like a yay, and then like, oh, back to reality, and then yay, again, down in uh, Romans chapter 8, 1. So I was just wondering, why do you think that little section is in there between deliverance and no condemnation? Okay. There's a dispute about whether Paul is just talking about himself before he knew the Lord and using the historical present when he talks about the battle that's going on. That's what my friend Mike Van Lanningham thinks, that this is Paul describing his pre uh, belief in Jesus, period. And then I think that verse 25 proves that he's talking about his normal experience as a follower of Jesus, because after he says that Jesus will deliver him uh, from this body of sin, this dying body, so then here's the summary. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live with the battle. I myself am a slave to the law of God, but my flesh continues to be a slave to the law of sin, the principle of sin in me. I'm going to still sin. This battle is going to continue, but in light of that, the fact that I've believed in Jesus, there is no condemnation now. That's what it's saying. It's saying I'm going to struggle with it in this life, but there's no condemnation. I'm going to stand in his presence because of what he has done. I hope that helps a little bit uh, for you, Skeeter. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's the first hour of Open Line. We're going to come right back with more of your questions with the second hour on most of these stations. Check it out on our website if you can't listen on uh, or listen online if you can't if you can't get it on your radio program on your radio uh, station. Open Line. By the way, check out our webpage, openlineradio.org. There's all sorts of helpful links that will help you see our current resource, how to become a kitchen table partner, even my personal website. Second hour of Open Line is coming up straight ahead, so don't go away. Open Line with Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Moody Bible Institute.